When you start looking for trauma, you begin to see it in every place you look, from the sacred to the most mundane. Joining me on the podcast today is Zoe Coyle, dear friend, collaborator, and about to be author. Her brand new novel is launching on the market right now, and it's a book that covers off on some of the really big themes of life, death, grief, recovery, what it feels like to feel and have your heart break. And it got me wondering, what's it like to experience the process of creatively writing about trauma, reading about trauma, talking about trauma? How does it feel in the body? And what does it do to a person's creative process? Stay tuned because you're about to find out. Zoe Coyle, it is such a thrill to have you on the podcast, unaccustomed as I am to ever working and speaking with you. But I want to really open by saying congratulations on your first novel because it is no small feat to birth a novel into the world and I'm so proud of you. Oh, thank you. It's so lovely to be with you. I always want to talk to you. How do you feel now the novel is on the cusp of being released? By the time this, this gets out into the world, it'll be released. How does it feel in your body? Uh, in my body, it feels like vulnerability. It feels so that sense of, so I have, I did have a sense of pride initially, which is interesting because pride isn't an emotion I feel a lot of in it's myself. Weird word, isn't that pride? It is. Baggage it's something there. I proxies for you know I've used say, say for example my mother I think about wanting to make her proud uh, make her proud but it's not something I think about myself and isn't it one of the seven deadly sins pride it is and that's why I mean it, it comes with some freight I love it that's your expression it's a word that comes with freight because the minute you say I feel really proud of it there's a part inside me that's like I oh, think you're so great yeah <laughs> no, absolutely like, I totally agree I, I guess I think of pride holding hands with the ego yeah. <laughs> and, but know, so, I think about pride as a as a GLBTI plus 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 thing, and I'm like, yes, bring on that glitter rainbow. I'm holding yeah. it. It's so true, and I, I guess that, that to to contextualize my sense of pride, it's the pride that we all feel when we've risked something when we've been courageous and when we've worked hard you know that really wholesome feeling see wholesome that's another word that's got free but that wholesome feeling you get on your first day of holidays when you've been working your guts out just before so my pride isn't oh world (laughs) sit down get a load of me it's certainly not that it's just that I wanted to write this story for 15 years 15 years and I couldn't find the bandwidth the space the courage the skill set to do so so when I'd finally done it I had and my pride had the quality of lying down on the floor and having a bloody good sob it wasn't it wasn't marching in the streets with banners so I felt I feel that um, I felt that and now I have a, a deep desire that it connects with people and then I have fear Um, that I'm going to be called out as pretentious and worthless and that I don't have a right to tell this story or indeed any story, (laughs) Uh, which, as you and I well know, is connected to shame. So I have all the feelings. But also, that said, when I'm in conversation with people about the book, the big fat conversations that arise from that feel deeply nourishing and meaningful. So when I say to you, it's all the feels, I mean, it's all the feels. Yeah, so in the fields. And so the genesis for being on the podcast today is that an idea I've been fermenting about and with you for some time because 
for those who aren't across Zoe's incredible career, aside from being a very accomplished writer and facilitator, Zoe at one point was also a very accomplished actor. And I've really been thinking as long as I've been thinking about trauma, about what it is that happens to us creatively when we either use our trauma as a vehicle for creativity or we are asked to embody the trauma of others in a performative way. And so Zoe was recording her copy of where the light gets in for audible the other week and we were in dialogue on the phone about what it was feeling for her to do that and so Zoe let's start by talking about the experience you had when you were narrating this book now you've been doing a lot of interviews and it's interesting how many people want this novel to be a memoir they want it to be truth and so probably we should start them all over the place. ADHD facilitation coming your way. Um, let's talk a little bit about the book and the content of it so we can get some context for why there are these big emotional themes in it. Yeah, great. So I heard a beautiful thing the other day, which I'm sure you've heard before, but I loved it, which is that every debut novel is part memoir, part wish fulfillment. Uh, <laughs> so true. And I love that. And, and that is true of my first novel. It is also true of my second novel. So potentially I suspect, I suspect here at the beginning of, of my of my life as a writer, that that may be true for me for the rest of my life. And, and here's the spoiler alert, maybe true for everybody who ever writes, even when we're embodying uh, people that are totally different to us, because we're always exploring the human condition. And so for me, to just, to, just to make it clear, uh, yes, there are things that I have in common with the book. So for example, Dachshund, a Dachshund plays a, a strong through line in the book. I am obsessed with Dachshunds. And I just finished my second book last night. I got to write the end. And the final sequence has a Dachshund in it. And I yes. went, well, I wasn't planning on that, uh, but that's all right. The, the, the novel takes place in three different countries, the first novel, and I have lived in those three different countries. Um, the, the, the main character, um, Delphi, is very interested in, in meaning and beauty and wholeness and brokenness and friendship um, and love. Those are themes that I'm very interested in. Um, and also she's she is having a... She's, she's under the process of, of exploring as a young woman, when you've been broken, how do you make yourself whole? Which is something you and I talk about a great deal uh, in relation to trauma and as human beings moving through this world. And what Delphi's experience was is that her mother had a terminal disease and she euthanized herself. I had a mother, uh, luckily, and uh, she had a terminal brain disease and she euthanized herself in Tasmania over 20 years ago now. Um, and euthanasia was not legal at that time, was not available. So voluntary assisted dying was not available. So she had to take matters into her own hands. And we legally could not be with her, um, but I'm going to talk in an I statement. I'm not going to represent anybody else in my family. I could not be with her when she died. And the process of recovering from her death, I think for anybody, the death of a beloved parent and potentially particularly a mother, and I don't mean that in the gendered sense, but I mean that is your first universe. Yeah. That, that, that heartbeat that you hear, that is the first nine months of your life, um, the hormones that go through your body, that, that is your complete world. So I once heard someone describing the death of the mother as the most profound tearing of the fabric. Mm. And I didn't really know what that meant until I came to terms in, in part with my own trauma. So I, forgive me being long-winded with this, I'm going to distill this down to 
the grief I felt for my my mother's death was um, was was very extreme and the trauma for about eight years. And I strongly believe now looking back, um, and as I said, it was 20 years ago, that the trauma was so great because of the way she died. Mm. And what I and I want to be crystal clear here, I fully support euthanasia mm. and the voluntary assisted dying bill. Uh, what I mean, and, I, and, and and people's right to choose the timing of their death, um, but but that we couldn't be with her as a family, that 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 separation and the guilt and shame I felt around that, and I couldn't process it very well because I was very young, but I you know was twenty one, um, meant that I was in a deep state of isolation and trauma and shame for the best part of a decade. So when I when I re-explored those themes, fictional characters in a fictional scenario in my in my debut novel, um, when I explored that. I underestimated what was going to happen reading it out loud. And uh, I was, to use the word correctly, triggered. So let's talk about that because, you know, of course we've been talking the whole process of you writing this book. And I think certainly in the early parts of it, there was a lot of stirring up, but there's, there was something that was profoundly different between the process of you writing and creating and the process of you speaking. What happened in your nervous system? What was the differences for you when you had to do that orated piece? And, and what do you make of it? Mm. It's such a good question. And I want to be really succinct. But I'm using my intellect to talk about something very, very physical. I want you to be really rambling and talk from your heart. So, uh, so when I was writing the book, there were times when I would finish a sequence and then just sob. And there was a catharsis in that. And, and then when I'd actually finished the book, I went to the cinema and I saw a film that had a euthanasia sequence in it that I wasn't expecting to come down the pike. And I was for the first time in my life properly triggered by that. I needed to leave the cinema. I collapsed. I vomited. I was shaking. I couldn't couldn't walk from the cinema and so much shame after that but I was I was I was with someone who loves me very well and took care of me and it was quite shocking because the next day I thought my god I'm broken and I've done so much work and so much therapy and I feel so at peace with all this and then how does that happen but I actually recognize now that I was in a safe place to, to excavate uh, grief at a deeper level and it came out and actually it was a real gift that that moving through um, so going back to answer your question around reading it out loud, I'd expected it, I'd anticipated it to be emotional. Um, and I also wanted to be professional and deliver a performance and deliver a reading that me writing this book was not intended as therapy. It was not just designed to be my therapeutic exploration. It was a conversation that I wanted to start and wanted to be in with my reader. And the same is true of speaking it out loud. But what was really interesting is if you don't feel your trauma, it kicks out and it comes out somewhere else. So in the sections during the in the book, which I was reading out loud about Delphi and her mother, about Vivian's death, um, about Delphi trying to help Vivian die, um, I felt a I felt a huge constriction in my heart and my chest, and I had to recognize that for what that was was that was fear, 
and I was coming back into connection with my own story, which, as I say, was different to the story in the book. So just coming into self-compassion and literally putting my hand on my heart. And I was private. I was in a little booth, so I couldn't be seen and coming into compassion. And I was incredibly hot when I was reading it. So I looked down and my T-shirt was a V of sweat almost down to my belly button. And I became, I was physically ill. So I don't know if I was physically ill because of the trauma or because I had a resurgence of COVID, but I started to lose my voice and, um, and I had fever. Um, but I managed to deliver the, the, those, the, that reading uh, well. But where I lost my shit, which I believe is a technical term, was there are two dogs that die in their book, one that is a hit and run and um, one that is euthanized. And I found it almost impossible to read those out loud uh, because my heart was breaking. Mm. So I think what was going on internally from a, a, a trauma base was that... Um, was that the trauma was being moved into a safer space for me to experience it. Mm. And then I just had to let myself cry and redo it and, and be in self-compassion. Mm. It's so interesting from a vagal nerve perspective and all of the things you've described in those sequences, you know, you can really see that that sort of vagal drop at play. You know, you go into, thank you for using the word triggering properly, but you go into that triggering and you literally become physically disabled. You know, when the dorsal vagal is engaged, it's like it drops like a stone. There's nothing mm -hmm. you could have done to change that. But I'm so fascinated with that work of the sort of constriction of the heart and the throat. And again, you know, two of the key areas of going into an over-functioning sympathetic response, mm. but withdrawing the power of the muscles of the throat. And one of the ways that, you know, we see trauma beginning to manifest or the state change happening is one of the first signals is that we lose our capacity to speak or we have a constriction or we can't breathe and we feel like there's a stone on our heart but mm. all of that you know so it's very it's it's beautiful and fascinating and you know deeply compassionate to hear you tell that because also going through that process alone in a booth drenched in sweat which is another big trauma tell temperature change huge mm. for like oh i'm having a movement so I think you're right, that capacity to, no matter how much therapy we've done, be safe enough and grounded enough to actually get deeper into the nub. But, you know, what a, what a big experience for you to have gone through. Well, and you've been incredibly helpful with me with this too, because one of the other symptoms that happened, if that's the correct term, is that my hands started shaking. Mm -hmm. uh, my hands were shaking for about three days of mm -hmm. the read. And one of the things you've taught me is that that is good. Mm. and allowing it to be so instead of coming into control and denial and negate I just accepted that whatever was happening energetically it needed to come out of my hands and instead of being unnerved I went into compassionate observer mm. and when I could really be in that place of compassionate observer the trembling stopped it was as if I was meeting a part of myself that's um, a and perfect way to describe it yeah Amazing. yeah um, but, you know, that thing of being bodily out of control, which we get from trauma and we get from shock um, and we get from shame is so frightening, isn't it? You know, that we, we feel so frightening. And if we can move towards it and accept that we're not going to die and we're not going to lose control, it's not going to be complete loss. Of control. And if there is, so be it. I mean, it's interesting to me how things come back into equilibrium. It's interesting to me that we see it as being out of control though when yeah. if we were able to really access and pay attention to the neurobiological intelligence of our bodies 
we are designed to shake. We are designed to tremor. We are designed to cry. We are designed to sweat because those are the mechanisms that move the trauma residues that are produced to allow us to do fight, fright, freeze, fawn, whatever we need to to be safe. That gets it out of our body. But because our prefrontal cortex is so conditioned us to believe we need this intellectual control, and if something is happening that we haven't gone, I've had a thought, shake body, um, <laughs> it, it is somehow abnormal as against going, you know, exactly what you're saying. If I can observe it and go, oh, okay, I'm going into a trauma reaction now, which will have a conclusion. You know, we don't sit in a trauma reaction of shaking for 20 years. We, shouldn't, we, sit, we, shit in a, we sit in a trauma <laughs> reaction for the period of time it takes to move that through. And you know, I've said this before in the podcast, but, you know, because I love saying it so much, it's like the, the response of trauma, PTSD and CPTSD doesn't happen in a response to trauma. It happens in a response to a mobilization after trauma. When we are not allowed to have the completing moment, it stops us from being able to move it through, which means that we are continually in our nervous systems looking for a chance to recreate, to release. So in lots of ways, by writing this book, and I think this is the fascination for me, is that as creatives, so often what we're doing is taking the completing action of the thing which we needed to have a vector to be able to understand. And, you know, this is where, like, the, the humanness of us desperately wants this to be a true story. But the reality is that our brains don't have a true story. As you know, our brains are just fictionalising everything. So the perfect way to work with trauma is in a creative expression. So by writing the multiple different endings of how that story could have played out for you, you've allowed your nervous system to go, oh, okay. And I think maybe reading that was for you that completion because it was mm. through a very embodied place, whereas I think writing is through an intellectual place, particularly onto a computer versus handwriting. So it's mm. kind of magical but huge. Huge. And I, but, and I absolutely agree with everything you've said because you're brilliant. Uh, and it felt very complete. It yeah. felt very complete. And it did feel, I mean, I, it made me think about why we say anything out loud. For example, wedding vows. Mm. Why we say them out loud, that there is something in the offering, offering it out into the ether that creates an alchemy. And me speaking emotional truths, um, and at the at the end of it, the the there was I was working with this beautiful sound dude, and he said, "How does it feel?" And I said, "It feels over." That's just what tumbled out of my mouth. Yeah, wow. Um, and and I and it does feel over. It feels replete. That said, you know, in book two, um, a mother dies, and and I was so I so plotted that my my main character Odessa was going to be there for her mother's death, and I I could not get her to be in the room with her mother died because every time I wrote it the mother was dead mm. she'd missed it mm. so fascinating I mean I, I wonder if if there is more progress to be had there it's just it's just you know that's an interesting idea the stories that we're we're compelled to come back and back and back mm. to mm. it's interesting I think many people who don't write have a belief that that books are really you know well structured and plotted but my experience certainly and I know your experience has been that you have an idea it's like oh I'm curious what what happens next and then you sit down and start writing and the characters are literally writing themselves and sometimes they're writing for me it was that they're writing themselves I'd be like what then you're doing what oh wow this is interesting and you do have that real sense of that the character is just allowing itself to come through you but I'm th thinking about that now in terms of what you're saying about book two I wonder again how much of that is the 
the kind of ulterior narratives of our own traumas that are like, let's just try it this way. Let's try yeah. it this way. Yeah, that you're so right. And it felt it felt to me very strongly like that and something mystical, something that I can't understand, which happens in the writing process of um, and, you know, and, and, and the beauty of Zoe, it's never done. <laughs> it's never done. And also that this 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 trauma of mine, which is the greatest trauma of my life, without hopefully sounding self-indulgent like I'm wallowing in pain has also been a great gift that I love I love this idea that 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 trauma when we are able to move through it when we are able to process it because obviously we can't do that straight up front it can build a cathedral inside us a space for awe and gratitude and wonder and perspective and empathy empathy I we all know what it is to suffer all of us and and those of us that have deeply suffered and really looked at it I think have a greater capacity for connection that's the reward with ourselves and other people and our wholeness like I know as a 44 year old woman um you know that 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 parts of me are broken and I feel no shame about that anymore that's I I, I refuse to disavow those parts of me that have been that have been crunched through life they get to come too and I get, I just treat them with some compassion, but I try not to let them drive the car, you know, because I don't want them acting out their brokenness, trying to break other people apart. Cause that's when I get reactive and competitive and start to come from scarcity. So I think when I first started thinking about this topic for the podcast, and I was thinking about, you know, actors going on stage and, and having to work with really big identities that were really traumatized. I think up until this very moment, I was thinking about that as a very separate thing. But the more I'm kind of speaking as I think, the more it's just, it's the same flavour, isn't it? So what was, and again, you were in your sort of 20s and 30s when you were acting. What was it like to then, to re-embodying trauma? How did it feel in the body to be asked to go on stage or in front of a camera and portray something that was terrible? Was it you? Were you acting? Where were you calling that from? Well. I speak with great humility here because I don't think I was ever a, a truly great actor. Um, I I think that I so did I think you ever I, play the bard though. I did no, no, I did not. There's still time. I'm going to rush upstairs and get into my fucking tights. Um, I so there are obviously different methods of acting, but the way that we were taught at NIDA, one of the, one of the ways was um, it was Stanislavskian, which is to access memories and resources from your own life and bring them out on stage. Um, so method acting, which we've all heard about in relation to say Dustin Hoffman or, um, or De Niro and you know, those hilarious, hilarious sort of anecdotes about um, method actors meeting different types of actors and, and uh, actors that just, just act. Say Laurence Olivier, for example, saying to a young method actor, for God's sake, haven't you heard, just act it. You know, you don't need to go and sleep outside to play a homeless person. Um, for me, boundaries, so to get back to the acting answer, boundaries have been um, a, a, um, complicated for me. I, that's not something that I learned until I was in my 20s and I'm still learning. So what I did when I was on stage was I brought my full self. And I think that was probably part of the reason that I was never a great actor 
because I, I do think now that that healthy boundaries are very important to be able to deliver a controlled performance, a, um, a wise performance. Uh, for me, there were two roles that I did. I played Clytemnestra, so I was on stage for three hours and she kills her daughter and it's, it's very bloody. And, and I felt like I was going mad. Um, I, I felt after the performance that the only way I could come back to a place of peacefulness was to drink hard. So talk about numbing. And then after I had my second child, I was in a play called Hedda Gabler and she goes mad. And I thought I could, I thought it was going to be perfect. I'd be able to put my babies to bed, then come home and kiss them in the evening. But I, I, it, it bubbled over to touch every part of my life. So I found myself sobbing over the dishwasher one day. And I recognized that this was an unsustainable, unsustainable type of life for me. I am an emotional creature. I have a tendency historically to over-identify with my feelings. And, um, and I'm passionate and I give all of myself. Some of those things are great gifts and some of them are my Achilles heel. But what it meant was that as an actor, I would flood with the emotional truth of the, the, the character that I was playing and I would lose myself in there. And it was extraordinary and exhilarating and, and fascinating. And there were moments on stage where I felt in ways that I've never felt before in my life, felt like I was channeling and like I was vast and I was connected to everything that went before and ahead. But that was very, very rare. Um, but afterwards, I felt like I'd willfully broken parts of myself that were fragile and needed protecting and that allowed me to be functional. So I'm not speaking for all actors. I'm speaking for myself as a young actor. I don't think that that's how it would be now for me to go back to acting. But interestingly, I have zero interest in returning to acting now. Do you, in your training, are you debriefed? Are you given strategies to be able to work through that? Because I often look at, you know, and again, this is through a very tabloid sort of lens, the, the way we are shown celebrity in this culture is I often look at people and think, wow, the trauma is so visible, visceral, it's so visible. And, and I wonder how much that people who are needing to work through their trauma are drawn to those creative outlets where they can, where they're also enabled to be numbing and to be doing all kinds of things that isn't allowing that debrief, isn't allowing that de-escalation of their nervous systems to happen. I think this is why, to make another complete generalisation, you know how much I love a generalisation. Blunt tool, blunt tool. Why, you know, when we were at drama school, we all drank and drank and drank. And every set I was on after that, other than in, other than in America, where there's not drinking, uh, there was a huge amount of drinking. No, I would have never asked, was I okay? Mm -hmm. the, the, I did have one extraordinary teacher at NIDA, um, a director, beautiful man called Helmut Bakaitis. And I collapsed in rehearsal one day and he a big bear of a man beautiful decent human being gay man of a certain of a certain age so he knew trauma he knew exclusion and he picked me up on the rehearsal room floor and he put a hand behind me and, and a hand right up high on my chest and said breathe darling breathe and there was no judgment there was just love and I went into full tunnel vision and was shake shake shaking and I, I look back at what kindness 
from him. That's the only moment I can ever remember anyone checking in with me. And I'm not doing a poor me. It's just not done. Um, I think it's considered sort of uncool and a bit unseemly if you can't cope emotionally. But what I do want to add is I don't think it's just actors or creatives. I think what I have noticed as a facilitator, and I met an extraordinary woman recently who is in a first responder team. So she's in this zooped up car. She is a paramedic. There's a police officer and a... Um, uh, another another doctor and then a fourth person in the car, forgive me, I can't remember. And they deal with um, people who have jumped off buildings. They deal with, they go into extraordinary situations. And this woman receives zero counselling. Even in that industry, no one rings her once a month to check in. So you scrape somebody off the floor, how are you going? And so, but the, the team works as a consolation where they exercise together, which I think is really interesting together, interesting, and they drink together. They drink hard. So she goes home, tanks a couple of bottles of wine, and that's, that's normal. I'm, I'm, there's no judging here. Mm. But I'm really interested that even in, in the industry where we take care of people who are dying and have killed themselves that there's no support group and of course I'm not comparing that woman's reality with my reality playing Hedda Gabler that's that's ludicrous mm -hmm. she she sees she is at the coal face of trauma and no one is supporting her it's amazing isn't it and I mean that's the world we live in and that is the the reason that I think you and I spend so much time exploring this world so I am really grateful to you coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Your new book, Zoe Coyle, Where the Light Gets In, is out. All good bookstores, Amazon and Audible. And look in your state in Australia for Zoe being on tour and at book festivals. And I cannot wait for the second book to come out and all this success. So thank you so much. You're just amazing. Thank you for having me. You're incredible. I love you. I love you too. That is it, my friends, the end of another episode of Polly's Bake Theories. But is it the end or is it just the beginning? Head to the website, www.pollymcgee.com. In the top right-hand corner, there's a little button, Polly's Bake Theories. You can anonymously email me there. If you'd like to ask a question, have a trauma topic explored, or even have a whole episode devoted to something that you want me to talk or think about. Plenty of other fun resources on the website as well. Until we meet again, stay regulated and stay at the top of your ladder.